listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, September 24th, 2007. Episode 38, Buddhism and Money, Does Priceless Mean It's Free? In the second part of our conversation with author, artist, and meditation instructor Ethan Nickturn, we deal with a slightly off-limits topic of spirituality and money. Ethan shares his perspective on what right livelihood ought to look like in a market economy where the Buddhist teachings are as valuable as many other services. This is part two of a three-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. They wanted me to write a short book, which I agreed with because every good book of nonfiction I've read, after about 160, 170 pages, I kind of get the point, and the rest is sort of redundant. So this book's about 160 or 170 pages. Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> that was intentional, then. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean... You didn't I, it, edit it way down or anything? Uh, we edited it down somewhat, but yeah. the publisher wanted it to be somewhat short. Your book came out around the same time as Brad's, didn't it? Two months before? Two or three months before? I think Brad's came out... I got it when... It, I feel like it came out in, like, April. Um, it? And a book... I mean, One City is... It came out a little bit earlier than it's supposed to, but it's, like, just hitting bookstores now. It came out, like, two weeks ago, but, like, my favorite indie bookstore in the East Village just got it. So that's a good feeling to go Do they through. have it downstairs at this round? I haven't checked. It'll be like two dollars. Don't be offended. Everything's <laughs> <laughs> no, so cheap down there. Well, they have used books at the Strand, which this hopefully there aren't. Well, maybe. No, they have tons of new stuff as well. Yeah, they have tons of new stuff, and they they slightly. I think they sell that for like twenty five percent. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, and then it will be two dollars. <laughs> Probably not. Don't everyone run out and get it at the Strand, you know. <laughs> I'm, I was at a blogging convention a couple weeks ago, and this author, she was recently published, her first book was published, stood up and said something about how she gets calls from people who are like, yeah, I checked your book out at the library, and she she feels like, you know, well, that's great, but, you know, hopefully you'll love it so much you'll want to buy it. Right, right. <laughs> but um, I think it must be, you know, it's hard. Uh, we're kind of moving into another point here, but I think it's hard to make a living as someone pursuing a right livelihood. I noticed, you know, you, you spend about three minutes or four minutes yeah, encouraging people to go to the website or to check out this mm -hmm. resource or that book or whatever, and it's great because I know you're trying to connect people with things, but there is sort of this infomercial, you know, tendency, not you necessarily, but I, I think for those of us who are making our livings doing this sort of work, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, the right livelihood thing, that's something I, we, I mean, we could talk for several hours about that. People have such screwed up notions of money in general, and especially spiritual people in a capitalist culture. I mean, it's, it's really amazing to see the, I don't want to call it hypocrisy, because I think a contradiction has to be more immediately apparent to the consciousness to actually be called hypocrisy, but the the cognitive dis dissonance or disconnect in people's minds around money because 
uh, people seem to want to keep spirituality really clean, you know, and if you start bringing money into anything that even looks spiritual, some people get uncomfortable. Other people are like, yeah, bring it on. You know, this is just the way it should be and it's right livelihood and we need to support it as much as possible and we have a market economy. But the people who feel uncomfortable with spirituality being monetary in any way, like with, you know, Buddhist geeks having a, you know, donate or, you know, monthly. We monthly do have website. a donation button. You Check it donate. out. <laughs> It's not cheap to live in these Buddhist geeks. The, they then, the way the mind kind of bifurcates or separates these realities is it says uh, spiritual stuff, holy, no money involved. Money dirty. So the, the realm of the world where you make money, be as dirty as you need to be. I mean, if you go work for Exxon and, you know, you're you know, screwing Nigerian oil workers. Fine. No problem. As long as you show up, you know, for your spiritual community and donate and, you know, participate in a clean way. So it's like people have really Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, their personalities around money and spirituality. And what's so dangerous is when a, a spiritual person does anything that even looks slightly unclean, they get scrutinized like heavily versus, you know, <laughs> secular, whatever that means, as if there were a separation between these two realities. Secular people can do something incredibly dirty. And it's just like, oh, yeah, well, that's that's what corporations do, you know, or that's how people have to make a living. So e equal standards are not applied. And I think I always had a hard time with this because, you know, this is more, you know, people who are real Dharma teachers, which I'm not. I mean, I'm a meditation instructor, but like people would talk so much smack about this Tibetan Lama or this. It, usually you wouldn't talk much smack about the Asian teachers. It would usually be, and this was another thing, the American teachers who were master teachers or acknowledged teachers in a Buddhist lineage, calling them charlatans or like fakes or something. And usually what would happen is the person would have no actual experience like oh yeah I've never heard them talk I just you know heard from someone else that they're fake and they're asking their students for all this money and it's it's really weird because the other thing is that I've been playing with a lot and just noticing in the Buddhist communities that I'm involved in is Buddhism comes from a culture of dana or generosity in fact the word donation is I think rooted in the Sanskrit and Pali word dana and uh, western culture really doesn't have I mean the churches may be somewhat, but they really, we really don't have a, a Donna culture. We think of if you ask somebody to pay, say, please donate to our cause and pay $10 for it. My association with that is being a kid, you know, and going to like the Metropolitan Museum of Art where they suggest a donation is $10. And you say, you look around and it's like the most amazing <laughs> uh, entryway you've ever seen in your life and say, well, this place is endowed out the wazoo, I'll give them a dollar. <laughs> right. So um, I do think it's, it's tough because, you know, spiritual things have a hard time surviving. And definitely in the, in the yoga world, that's interesting too, because some people think of yoga as spiritual. Some people think of it as exercise. And insofar as it's exercise, charge whatever the hell you want for it. And insofar as it's spiritual, ooh, you're thinking about charging money for that? And what ends up happening, you know, in a capitalist culture is that people think that they are protecting spirituality by not supporting it or by not, by trying to keep it somehow separate from the evil money round. And they're sort of actually protecting it out of existence. You know, it becomes so idealized that it just can't exist in the world of dirty mm -hmm. <laughs> markets, you know. 
And uh, I really think the other thing that happens is that people, again, I told you I had a lot to say, <laughs> people, they end up not supporting what they actually believe in. Because if something has a price tag, you just pull out the credit card or pull out your wallet and you say, yeah, I guess I have to pay that. And if somebody asks you for money. So when I was, uh, you know, I don't want to get too... Um, personal, but like when I was the manager at the Shambhala Meditation Center in New York for a year and a half, we would ask members to give money on a monthly basis, you know, like anywhere from, kind of. I mean, it wasn't anywhere close to 10% of their income, which is what tithing was. Right. Um, and that might be actually a good, if you consider yourself a Dharmic person to give 10% of your income to, it doesn't have to just be your church because we don't really have them, but dharmic causes mm -hmm. you could set that aside and say i'm gonna every year give 10 percent. but you'd ask people to give 25 dollars and say well that's a little bit out of my budget range and you'd go out to dinner with that person two nights later and they'd spend 25 dollars on dinner and, and two drinks you know so, okay well that's interesting you, you made a choice there and it's you know i think the options that spiritual things have is either to just enter the marketplace and when you look at what we're doing in the marketplace in terms of teaching meditation i mean in this city there's all kinds of people doing life coaching which as a meditation instructor i mean i've, I've met with a few friends who are life coaches i think you're you're much more at least in the shambhala tradition you're much better trained and more in depth to actually work with other people's minds and life coach most people are charging you know over a hundred dollars an hour to meet with people you know, and then you walk into a meditation and it's like, oh, you know, ooh, we don't we don't take money. But if you want to give us money, mm. I guess we have to take it. You know, what about the, the idea or the concept of just charging at, at my studio in Japan? We had a, a choice. Uh, we do guided meditation once a week and we were like, well, we can either set a price create a donation situation or make it free yeah. and in the end we decided to make it free because we charge quite a lot for our yoga classes right, right. so like we were able to strike a balance in that way but I mean I don't know if people if people just knew okay when I go to class today just like how I go to a yoga class I know right. going to a meditation class I gotta give five bucks yeah if that That's was it. Uh, it's interesting you said five bucks for much, most yoga classes in the city are 18 or 20. I know. So that's already true. you. One of the things I think of is, is it's just the perception of value. I mean, that's, I was really interested in economics from a Buddhist standpoint in college because, and really the only person who really approached a Buddhist kind of mental look into the superstructures that influence a person's psychology and economics was Marx and the people came. But, um, you look at it's all about how people perceive something as valuable. So if people think this is something that's free, then that's what you get. I, I think of it, the best example I can think of it as is the, the cup of coffee example. But you're not from New York, but we basically have four kinds of delis that you can buy coffee from in New York. You got your cheap bodega, which we have in uh, my neighborhood, uh, Williamsburg, where it's kind of dirty. You're not sure if uh, the guys who run it are um, selling illicit goods or having cockfighting in the back or what's going on because there's like just dusty bags of chips and then there's one coffee cup and it put, they put it into a styrofoam cup and it tastes like sludge and you're willing to pay 50 or 60 cents for that cup of coffee. Then there's the fancier bodegas which are 75 cents. Then there's the more shishi Korean delis which are like a dollar to a dollar 25 and then there's like the fancy cafes and Starbucks which are like a dollar 50 to two dollars. Now if you walk into Starbucks and they ask you to pay two dollars for a cup of coffee you don't think twice because it's a Starbucks that's what you pay. But if you walk into what you perceive as one of the bodegas that you're supposed to be paying 50 cents for a cup of coffee and they ask you for $1.25, you're like, wait a minute, what's, you know, you feel jipped, you feel ripped off. So I think 
in a way, Buddhists have done, and spiritual people in general, have done a really bad job marketing <laughs> what we do as meaningful, you know, because we basically said it's priceless, which is true, except the way people with a Western capitalist mentality who have to enter the marketplace every day of their lives uh, think of priceless, they think of it as, okay, well, I'm, that means it doesn't have a price. Thanks. <laughs> you know, and what we mean, when, what in Eastern cultures they meant when they said this is priceless was show up at the monastery with half of your livestock from this year because the monks and nuns and teachers need it to keep flourishing the Dharma. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do about it. I mean, obviously, you know, the ID project isn't a, a meditation center so much as it's a you know, collective for people who are interested in arts and activism. So we, we have, we run on a suggested donation model and we're trying to get people to contribute on a regular basis. Is that working? Um, well, we're just starting, we're just getting our not-for-profit status. So I'm just, we're just starting to pay me to be the executive director three days a week. We have enough money to do that for two months at this point. So we'll see how it goes. I think there's a, there's a chance of, transforming the culture, you know, and it's something, you know, in, in the Shambhala community, in uh, every, every Dharma community I've, I've been in, you know, there's a real poverty mentality, there's a sense that we don't have enough money to do all the great things we want to do, and we don't know, we're not going to tell people to give us money, so... But there's also, like, a not asking part of right, it, right, too, right. you know, like, we don't want to approach someone for help, and there's definitely no way we could accept money from... X for help, right. you know, because they are dirty money. You right, know what right, I'm right. saying? I mean, or you just get perceived in the spiritual community. Right. A, a guy actually emailed us about a year ago because the ID Project podcast is pretty popular too. He wanted to know our download stats because he places lifestyle products for, you know, the spiritual, or I think they're actually people who are interested in this kind of stuff and the marketing terminology are called cultural creatives. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. He places culturally creative products in podcasts, you know, and so it would be like the ID Project podcast brought to you by Naked Juice Company or something. So uh, we never responded to him because I figured let's just try, you know, asking people to support the ID Project and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely when you break it down, like, People support, is it, uh, what percentage of it, of people who are downloading, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percent, I'm sure Buddhist Geeks feels this too, and at a certain point you say, well, should we go to, you know, there's a pay per service thing, but you do want to keep it accessible to people who can't afford it, you know, so I don't know, maybe the best model for spiritual things is having, because they're so... They do have benefits. That's the other thing. We need to stop talking about Buddhism as doing nothing. <laughs> it has in immense, and when you look at the Buddhist path, it has immense benefits on the human mind, you know. And I feel like my, uh, uh, I hate to uh, diss my Ivy League education, but I feel like my study of Buddhism did more to make me a student of life than my four years at Brown University, which uh, my grandmother's inheritance paid $125,000 for. So psychologically, I should be va valuing my Buddhist education at more than $125,000. Um, but nobody's ever asked me to pay $125,000 for it. Whereas Brown's like, oh, you, you want to come this semester? I don't know what to do about it. What do you, I mean... Well, it's funny because I've had the same conversation with Patrick, and we talked about Zen is Stupid. We don't have a website. We don't have a blog. It's right. just a podcast. And we're like, How, what's our price? You know, if we were approached by, say, 
McDonald's and they wanted to, they just wanted a little blurb at the beginning of every podcast for us to tell people to go shop, you know, eat at McDonald's. Uh, but they would make, make it so that we could live comfortably for the next 20 years or whatever. What's our price. And you, (laughs) I kind of asked Brad the same question. Like, what's your price? Like if someone offered you like a totally amazing job, but it meant that you probably wouldn't have as much time to spend teaching the Dharma. What's your price? I mean, he sort of laughed too. We, we kind of laugh about this, but I really want to know what, uh, you know, it's selling out. Like you you don't want to sell out. You want to like serve, you you know, you want to spend your life serving. Uh, you also don't want to fall into the poverty mentality trap and and be broke. (laughs) My dad's a real interesting guy in this, in this context, David McTurn, because he's somebody who's been a part Buddhist teacher for 30 something years on a volunteer basis, mostly, um, and he r- runs a music business too, and is a musician. So he, he's an artist, a businessman, and a spiritual practitioner and teacher. And it's interesting because you know it's never <laughs> the thing is it's it's never that one bit the way he talks about it. It's never that one big sellout moment. You know, McDonald's doesn't show up at your doorstep <laughs> and say, "We'll give you a million dollars for them." Why would McDonald's be interested? In them? <laughs> like, good good life they are. Um, it's it's little moments of compromise, and you know, and that's really the way the co-opting you know works. And from a certain point of view, if we're going to exist in a market, we have to realize that that's how these <laughs> services and things that we provide are valued. You know, so. It's tough. You know, it's interesting also, I I think, looking at setting oneself up as a not-for-profit, like the ID Project, and I've worked at a couple not-for-profits, in a way, the way the legalities work, you're kind of set up to never do as well or have as much clout as for-profit entities. You know, and from 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 a Buddhist standpoint, the notion of profit, I think, Buddhism is a non-for-profit. doesn't mean you can't really flourish and pay the bills and pay everybody a, a good livelihood for doing something that's really beneficial to their society. But the individual who's engaging in that activity shouldn't be, their motivation shouldn't be oriented towards bling. And luckily, you know, there's not, I think probably in the Eastern world, Dharma teachers who were like, you know, in some cultures they were, they were the teachers to emperors, they were the teachers to kings, and maybe that all, you know, they were the spiritual advisors to kings, they were the, in our parlance, they were the life coach or therapist to like, you know, the emperor of Japan or something like that. It's definitely not gotten to the point where any, any, no, there's no Dharma teacher in the West who has, I mean, maybe the Dalai Lama, but who has major clout, you know, that way. So the idea of selling out that way hasn't really come up, you know. So when we talk about selling out in the Buddhist community, we're talking about it on a really small scale. It doesn't really, we're not talking about the way Jay Z sells out. <laughs> this has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, 
idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.